God our Father, we want to thank you that you are concerned enough about us, even though you're the creator of all the universe, concerned about, enough about us to send us a teacher and a redeemer in yourself, in your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you give us the scriptures, but thank you that also, uh, during his time, Jesus met with and changed individuals by looking to see what the problem was in their heart and putting it straight. Thank you that he did that not only then, when he walked around on earth, but he does it today. And thank you that he gives us the task of being agents of change. Would you please help us to be useful in achieving your purposes in our time and our place by helping us see the problems in our own hearts and to identify and see the problems in the hearts of those that you've given us to care for. And help us to bring to those problems the one and only counsel that makes a difference, the counsel of Jesus the teacher and Jesus the redeemer. Thank you that that counsel is a counsel that works. During this session, Heavenly Father, please help Sonia and I to be uh, clear in our thinking and faithful in what we have to say. But also please help everybody here to engage well uh, with um, the thinking processes that need to go on around the table so that we all become more useful at the end of the hour. We ask this for Jesus' glory. Amen. So I've alluded to the fact as I've prayed that there'll be some work for you to do and Sonia and I are going to have to discipline ourselves not to talk too much because we want you to spend at least um, a third, maybe even a half of this session um, looking into a couple of cases that we've put for you inside the handouts. Now, the handout um, for this session is that one. It's got a fairly obvious title on it. It's a little one that's folded over. Um, and um, some of what I talk about will be summarised on the handout, so it's quite helpful if you use it to follow through. The Martin Luther quote is on the back of it. Um, very briefly by way of introduction, um, we're going to be making some presumptions here um, and uh, in order to work with, you know, get with the programme, these are presumptions that you will need to share. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to uh, justify these assumptions, I think they're biblical assumptions. If any of them don't make sense to you, I suggest that you come and have a chat with either me or Sonia or Andrew or the leader of your small group cluster, is that the right word, for want of a better word? afterwards. But those five assumptions, um, that changing from folly to wisdom is basically uh, a process uh, that follows a recognition that our sin is grave and serious, um, that change happens by change of heart, um, that Christ is not just um, the one who saved us in the past and will take us to glory in the future, but is also intimately involved in the present um, and that during our lifetime, God plans to change us by daily repentance, not a single act at the point of conversion. Those assumptions are key to everything that we'll be talking about. So um, if they are not assumptions that you share, um, then afterwards, please come and have a chat with the person who looks after your small groups. Um, um, very briefly, last time, um, we set out to convince those of you that were here that... Um, we have a bad habit of living in what some writers call the gospel gap. I've alluded it to, it, to it already. Um, we, we know and hold dear the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and saves us. We know and hold dear to the hope that one day we'll be with him in glory. But when we are sitting in a traffic jam 
on the way to a job interview at quarter past ten on a Thursday morning, our responses tend not to be gospel-driven responses. So we're coming at this issue of moving from foolish responses to wise responses from, as it were, a different direction from, from Ben. We're looking at what happens at the gritty street level of your real life and how do you move back into the scriptures to understand what's going on in your heart and to begin to work to change it. And I'm saying you because we have to do it for ourselves if we're going to ever be any help to anyone in our small group. Does that make sense? So same thing as Ben's been talking about but starting with what goes on in your life and going back in the other direction. Um, And as well as setting out to convince you that we live in this gospel gap last time, we also just um, flirted with the beginnings of a way of looking at what's happening in the moment-to-moment vignettes in our real life by asking some questions. And we're going to pursue that activity today. Um, We set set out eight questions last time. In fact, we invited you to begin to apply these in your own life. But there's one question in particular, question three, which asks this. As you look at a situation to which you react, like stuck in traffic, um, what does your reaction tell you about, well, essentially, what is going on at the level of the heart? Um, What you expect, what you fear, what you desire, what you crave. And um, we're going to be working very much more with these questions today in the two cases that uh, Sonia and I will share with you. Indeed, um, the whole session is um, applying these eight questions in a couple of cases that I hope you can relate to because they're taken from discussions that Sonia and I have had with, well, members of this church family. Um, In both cases, they are concatenations of several people, so please don't try to uh, imagine who they are because they're not one individual. And certainly when I say, um, when, when when we give names, those names are not helpful. I mean, they're helpful in that they don't reveal any identities. Um, I have a roadmap, really, for the work that Sonia and I want to do over the whole year, and this is what it is very roughly. We spent some time trying to convince you of the importance of this. We're moving on from that now. Um, We're now looking at knowing what to do when you're faced with the circumstance that arises in your own heart or in somebody in your small group. And today, we're going to be seeing how that works out. So this is intended to be a, a practical session, albeit slightly arm's length. Um, In a nutshell, we're working with a principle that Jesus himself articulated, which is the very simple principle that how we respond, how we act, what we do, reveals our hearts. He says it better than that, so put the quote up on the board. And he says it millions of times in millions of places. This is not something someone's made up. It is God's principle that how we respond shows what goes on at the level of the heart. And we're simply taking that and working with it. Um, To show you how these cases work, um, I've put up um, what I'm going to call a vignette, a little moment, an exchange. And I've chosen one where we know the answer because um, the great counsellor is at work. And I want you to consider a question that we'll then be doing as we work with the two much more mucky cases that we present to you. Um, Something happens in the second half of this. Jesus, um, loving this man suggests that he goes away, sells all his possessions, gives them to the poor, and then starts following him. And the man responds. You see his response? The response is he goes away sad. For one minute, 
Have a think about what that tells you about what is going on at the level of the heart in that rich young man. Anybody? Say one minute. Five seconds. Uh, Anybody want to? uh, Anyone want to uh, identify what's going on at the level of the heart in that man? Please feel free to share ignorance. It doesn't matter if you don't get it right. Say again. He didn't want to change. So one thing that he craves is um, control, continuity, things staying the same. Any other aspects to that? Um, I'm sorry? Very helpful. Okay, so we've got quite a detailed analysis there. I heard Anne talk about his stuff, his possessions. And more important to him than a relationship with, well, the living God who is walking in front of him. And John's added an important word here, which is idolatry. Idolatry means there's nothing wrong with the thing, you know, enjoying the good things that God has given him. But those things have become more important to him than his relationship with the living God. And the reason we can be reasonably confident about that, if you like, diagnosis, is we see Jesus, the great physician of the heart at work, and we see that he is pressing buttons to reveal that heart. He applies the heat to this man because he knows, he sees what's going on at the level of the heart. And so he, he um, invites a response that is um, in which a relationship with God is absent. Are you obeying the the second half of the commandments, yes I am. And then he goes for the jugular and he applies the heat by saying, why don't you give up the stuff you've got? Turns out that stuff is more important than a relationship with the living God. Now, however good you are, um, you're not him. And so as you begin to engage with this same process with members of your small group, remember this, you're in partnership with the living God. He will apply the heat and the heat of circumstance will bring out and expose the problems at the heart level with members of your small group. Your job is to look carefully at what's going on at the level of the heart and help that member of your small group or yourself turn from folly to wisdom. This man's response was folly and it had consequences. Um, But your job is to begin to turn hearts to wisdom. You're, You're probably not going to see straight into the heart as Jesus did and apply the heat. You're going to work with the circumstances that God has given you. Does that make sense? And we're going to do that by looking at two cases and trying to use these questions to intelligently diagnose what's going on at the level of the heart. Um, Can can I just say, um, Sonia and I are inexperienced. Many of you are better at doing this than we are. I said that last time and I really mean it. Um, So don't suppose for a minute that the discussions around your table will be less good than the thoughts we've had on these people. You may well have a lot uh, to identify that we haven't. This is a process of learning together. We're confident the process is right, but we are um, full of expectation that you will come up with insights that are every bit as helpful as anything that we come up with. Um, So here's my invitation. Will you turn to case one? Case one is a medium-length description of a man called Peter. And what I want you to do, it'll take you a couple of minutes to read it, is read it through and then share with each other your immediate responses to Peter. I hope he's somebody you can relate to. Um, When you've done that, 
And I'm going to direct you to look at him in a different way by using the first four questions. So let's just spend a minute or two reading it through and then we'll come back to the front. I'm hoping for the gentle bubble of immediate responses shared around the table. I might ask for a couple of those responses and then we'll move to the next stage. I'll be listening out for the bubble. Okay, now I'm going to presume that um, everybody's roughly had time to read about Peter. Um, can I just, as I said before, invite just some initial reactions because um, we always react to people. Um, we have to think about our own reactions as well as Peter's. Uh, and then we'll move on to the next and more important phase. How did, how did people respond to, to reading about Peter? If he's in your small group, how do you respond initially? Um, so what was that? What was that response? Oh, you mean? Yes. So, so as you hear about his life and his circumstances, you you can relate to them. Is that? Yeah, that's helpful. Any any other responses? Please. Yeah. Okay. So you're thinking already. How? What response will you show him? And that's a helpful thing to think. I guess I'm thinking what response happens in you at this stage. And uh, I imagine there'll be a variety of responses, none of them right or wrong, but it's helpful to be mindful of them. Yeah, you feel sorry for him. Yeah. So Caroline's response is already, uh, you know, trying to work out what's going on here, and that is where we're all going to go next. That's very, very helpful. Judy, you had your hand up as well. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you. So, was that a hand up, Paul, or are you? I guess that um, you were asking how we would feel initially in that. Yes. So, football terrified. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that 
And secondly, I, I guess incredibly privileged. Yes. Um, at the year of you are Yes. This is a, you know, if this is supposed to be a rubber hits the road situation. That's why I said we're we're looking the other way from from Ben, same direction, but from the other from the other direction. We're talking about where the rubber hits the road and seeing what that means and where we can go with it. So those are, those are very helpful. Um, what what I want to do uh, next is much more important. Um, some people um, will want to respond to the circumstances and the behaviour. Um, what I want you to encourage, to do, encourage you to do at this point, uh, as a part of God's pruning process, is to look beyond the circumstances and the behaviour um, and instead work out if you can find the root, where all this is coming from. It's a process that Caroline was already beginning to describe, but I want all of us to spend time doing it, at least five minutes doing it. My little picture is supposed to show the difference between pruning off behaviours um, and pruning properly at the level of the root. So um, you'll find behind the two case studies the eight questions that I popped up on the screen a moment ago. You have a full five minutes um, to think intelligently by using the first four questions about what is going on at the level of the heart. And can I give you one hint? And this works well with the case, but it also works, I think, very helpfully in real life, in real encounters. Instead of doing what we all do, which is to generalise and see if you can see some general themes, start with something concrete, like the moment at which he turns to pornography, and work out what's happening there, and then start to see if that adds up to the other responses in his life. That one way of doing it will make a profound difference, I think, to whether you get things right and whether you can be helpful. Right, I'm um, really sorry to break up a growing hum of conversation, but we um, have two cases to look at, so I'm going to have to um, ask you to, to um, just finish that thought there. Um, rather than running through these questions one at a time, I want to go straight for the, straight for the jugular. Um, what did, what did you feel was going on? What's driving Peter? What, what drives him? Um, don't be reticent, just go for it. It doesn't matter. A fear of failure. Thank you very much. Now look, when we look at what's driving the heart, it is of course complex and there are a number of different ways of looking at it and seeing it, but I'm sure that's absolutely right. Um, um, before we explore what that means, shall we hear other thoughts, other ways of looking at Peter's heart. Certainly fear of failure is strong. Right? Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so he is big in his world. That's a very interesting observation. Yeah. Anne, you had your hand up? Yes. Yep. What you're beginning to do here is move from what drives his heart to the effect that has on his relationship with his Lord. And the two will always go hand in hand. As you begin to look at what somebody fundamentally believes or fears, it will have an impact. There's a phrase, um, people are always doing something with God. Um, so just as this self-reliant 
fear-failing, self-absorbed man um, will struggle in his relationship with God. He's a self-justifier. Very helpful observations. Other ways of looking at him? Fiona. You're picking up on uh, how he does fatherhood and uh, yes, that's helpful. And one thing I'd want to say, of course, nobody is just one thing. We're all messy and one of the reasons for including elements in these, in these two case histories that are authentic but not uniform is that you know, there is a fog to life. Sometimes it's hard to separate circumstance and response. Sometimes it's hard to work out if there's a single thing driving the heart or many things together. Perhaps one or two more and then we'll draw it together. Um, Matt? Um, he's more likely to uh, try and escape rather than to flee. That's interesting, isn't it? That was from the, that, the moment, the instance I asked you to look at. Any thoughts about why, when faced with pressure and, well, effectively, a point at which he might have admitted failure, instead of admitting failure, he goes for, did he use the word escape? Why, why do you think he did that? Yeah, a, a man faced with failure has you know, a couple of options. Um, either avoid the feelings uh, or run to a rescuer. And he's not someone who's going to run to a rescuer, is he? Um, and this is the point that Anne was making. This, this, sorry? He's thoroughly self-reliant. But of course, there's a lot more to Peter, but I think we are rounding on something of the character of his heart. And I just want to put it in a, in a bigger context. Um, every heart is unique, but the Puritans had a helpful way of looking at what, at what we might call the master categories. I, I don't want you ever in your encounters to people to be simplistic and say, this one's a fearer of man, this one's a lover of stuff, this one's proud, because there are always more elements to anybody's heart. But it is also true that when... The fear of the God, the fear of the Lord is not before our eyes. When we are not being driven by wisdom, there are some major categories of folly. And um, here are at least three of the major categories of folly. Um, pride, which uh, seems to be the major, the master category within which Peter falls. Um, there are others that will run to somebody else looking for rescue and redemption from them for up to other people. As God gets small, other people get large. In this case, as God gets small, Peter himself gets large. It's something that's been identified all the way around the room. And then there are others for whom security in stuff, in possessions, becomes very large. Now these are probably not exhaustive, um, but they are very helpful master categories to have in your mind as you work out at a more detailed level what's actually going on with someone. Um, and you could identify elements of all three, of course, in anyone's heart, including Peter's. But the master, the driver for him, seems to be a variety of pride. Um, and as Anne began to say, the next question is, what does that problem of the heart do to his relationship with God? What does he do under pressure? Well, he doesn't run to God, does he? He runs away from God. 
and he seeks um, an escape, a dulling of the feelings, uh, which works for him. But the consequences of that are, where is he left with God? Um, just, ca- can you answer that question? What, what has this done for his relationship with God? Look at his response to his um, flight to pornography. Um, can anyone describe what's gone on in his relating to God there? He feels alienated. What is it that brings him back to God? How does that get restored? Time. Water under the bridge. Now what does that tell you about what he thinks gives him access to the living Lord? You're looking at a man for whom the gospel has really functionally vanished. His access to God is based on either God forgets or God doesn't see, or I can do enough stuff between then and now that God will have me back. Is that the gospel? It's, the, it's almost the anti-gospel, isn't it? And here's a man who I would have thought a number of us can nevertheless relate to, and he's living a functional anti-gospel, and he needs gospel counsel. And what I want you to do in the next few minutes, and we'll need to move on to the other case, is I want you to think about the next step with this man. Um, how are you going to help him? Please use the next four questions, six to eight, five to eight, to begin to get there. I'm afraid I can't give you five minutes. It's about two, and then we'll carry on. Now, um, that's a little more than two minutes up um, and I would absolutely love to give an hour to this discussion but we haven't got an hour for this discussion so again I'm going to ask you to um, going to ask you to come back to the front what we'll try to do Sonia and I have just talked about it is give you a bit less time thinking about the nature of the problem in the second case and a bit more time thinking about what you might do with it but it would be interesting to know what you've come up with as you've given two or three minutes to that um, uh, to where you'll go with Peter Anyone brave enough to um, pipe up? I think it's very lonely. Good. Good. And I hope that that um, that wise advice would go, you know, make make sense to everybody. Let's not then be tempted to just be correctors, um, but also to be supporters. But he needs more than just loving, doesn't he? He needs redirecting. (laughs) And so I'm interested to know how you're going to begin that process of redirection for him.
Good. And did anyone come up with any um, any scripture that might be helpful for him? I should have asked you to do that, but I think, yeah, Alfie. Read it nice and loud so everyone can hear. Very helpful. I'm going to. I'm going to. I mean, it, the, the, you've communicated the idea really well. I'm going to cut you off just for time reasons and because I love you. The um, the uh, yeah, re- really helpful. Now, look, solving his problems is not a matter of sharing a simple scripture with him and saying just just know this, but you will be likely to be underserving him if you don't uh, think together about um, a piece of scripture in which God reveals who He is uh, in a way that in a way that addresses this problem of the heart. And best of all, not only reveals who God is, but also provides a, a command or an instruction or a guidance about how to respond differently under pressure. I'm going to show you the, the one that I used, um, which has actually been helpful for me as, as well as, I hope, for Peter. But of course there would be many. And I, I'm doing this in order to show you some of the ingredients of a piece of scripture that might work well. Um, I'm going to read it out because it's quicker than you reading it. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A few things, reasons why I would choose that. Firstly, Here's a man who is fooling himself that God doesn't see or forgets. The first part of that passage reminds you that that is not true. But it's more than just a rebuke. It also presents the full nature of God. The God who is sufficient to forgive even a man who might think he's put himself sufficiently beyond redemption that he goes into escapism instead. And it contains an instruction. Uh, An instruction to do what he hasn't done, which is to hold firmly to the faith that he professes, the gospel faith. And that looks like this. It looks like in your time of need, he first has to recognise that he has times of need because he's fooling himself that he doesn't. In your time of need, you approach God's throne of grace and you do so with confidence uh, because you need mercy and you need grace. Um, Now there's much more to be said. But um, what I hope um, we've begun to illustrate is this. Um, Look for what's going on at the level of the heart. 
do so not by generalising what somebody knows about themselves, but by looking at little moments, real instances of life lived out. How did the response go and what does it tell you? And as you begin to think about how you might help, remember that any heart astray has not only enlarged or idolised something, but it's also pushed the fear of God out. And as you want to correct that, you are primarily concerned with restoring that distorted relationship with the God of the Gospel. Um, And that's a very different thing from offering to change somebody's circumstances or curtailing or editing their behaviour when it strays over certain boundaries. So we hopefully strengthen that by looking at another case. I'm going to hand over to Sonia now. Some of you may have flicked ahead to see Jane's story that I've written there. Um, I'll give you a couple of minutes to read it through and again think about your initial reaction to her story. Perhaps share that with the folk around your table. Um, yeah, if you do that first, just read it through and um, initial responses again. Okay, I'll I'll stop you there. Um, Again, Jane doesn't exist. Jane is a mixture of about 12 or 13 people that uh, I've met up with over about 18 months. Um, I've deliberately made it a bit of a mess because basically that's people, isn't it? So someone in your home group, small group, could well be exactly like this. And the thing is, it just all comes at you. You have this... It's as if I've thrown a sort of jigsaw puzzle of Jane's life out on the table. Some of the bits are facing up, some of the bits are facing down. And what we're going to try and do is just help you to put in perhaps the edge pieces. That's literally, you know, just begin to get a framework for thinking about Jane. So I've deliberately made it quite a mess. Um, I know Dave Todd's initial response, because he walked in the door and said, Flippin' it! Any other initial responses? (laughs) Sorry? It's all about her. Thank you. Sad. It makes you feel sad. Yep. Yep. Focused a bit on... Yeah. Anyone else identifying with that? Yeah. Okay. It's a female thing. Yeah, <laughs> who said that? Was that a woman who said that? Oh, that's scary. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so now with Jane's story in front of you, again, it's the same exercise. You've got those first four questions. So we're looking at the, first, um, the top four, which we call this vicious cycle of folly, which fits in rather nicely with what Ben was teaching us earlier on. Um, 
a tip again, especially with someone like Jane, try and just pick out one thing as you're thinking through what she, what's she actually facing, what's her current situation problem. You will get into a complete minefield if you try and pick out everything that she is facing at the moment. But maybe just pick out one and follow that through with the four questions and see where you get to. Okay, um, sorry to cut you short. I know it's all a bit of a, a bit of a rush. Um, so the question one thing, I, you could have gone in on so many different points of contact with Jane's story, and I would be interested to know which ones you all picked on. So there's a list, isn't there? The, the most recent dramatic thing is this rejection by this bloke at work today. Um, that is something that has happened to her today that she is responding to. Um, but there are other things, aren't there, all through that story. There's her long history of depression that you might have picked in as something that she is facing, dealing with, and responding to. Um, there are her, her overall friendships. She's having that sense of people basically abandoning her, friends getting married, moving on. Um, so she's lonely. Um, you may have picked out that she was single. That could be the thing that she's having to deal with that you want to go in on. Um, it's, everything is important that's in there, even though I'm asking you to be specific. So even the fact that she's 43 is important because someone who's facing singleness at 20 will have a whole different set of reactions to being single than someone who's 43 and single. The whole thing is much more intense um, and that whole time running out thing is a massive deal. Um, she lives in a physical body. This body is on medication. Maybe there are side effects of that medication that she's having to cope with. Um, she's got this weight thing going on where she'll eat masses for comfort and balloon. And then there are other times in her life where she's stopped eating and got incredibly thin in response to situations. So any of those things you might have thought of were situations that she's having to deal with. She's also got a background, a family background. There's this, I just put it into the side, an aggressive father figure um, who abandoned the, their family as a teenager. You know, it's a massive thing that's happened in her life that she will be responding to on some level. So any, who went in? Where did you go in? Who picked something? So you picked out the pattern in the relationships that seems to be, they've not worked out brilliantly. Yeah. 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 And also, in that question one thing, when you're looking at what someone's facing, it's important to think, what is their Christian framework? Because that's something, they're also, that's part of what they're dealing with. So actually her... Christian framework is pretty patchy, isn't it? She's got this initial genuine conversion, but she would be someone who I would say is living in that gospel gap. You know, she, I even put it in there to articulate, she, she knows she's forgiven, she's looking forward to heaven, but even her idea of heaven is pretty self-centred, isn't it? It's just no more pain and suffering. That'll be great, thanks very much. But the idea of actually the gospel having something to say about now isn't really there. 
So how is she responding then to, if we take this rejection today by this man at work, what's the response? There's a sense of despair, isn't there, over this? The, you know, the level of despair is significant. Yeah, Anne. Um, we have the idea of So you're moving into question three there, which is where we want to go. Oh, it's not on the board anymore. Um, what are her sort of, what does how she's responding show about what her functional beliefs are, regardless of what she's professing to be true about God? How does that look in what she's doing? Like you say, God isn't doing what she expected him to be doing. Um, if we take that question further and think through question three, what is it that she wants, craves, desires, longs for. I, I've, I've sort of articulated it in the case, but what, what do people get? She wants a man. Yeah, she does. And so you can make it as specific as you like, but fundamentally Jane is someone who is longing, longing for this husband that hasn't pitched up yet. Um, and I've put that sort of aching worship kind of language in there for a reason, that sort of aching plea that ends every quiet time. Please, Lord, give me this person. You know, please. And it's that kind of level of wanting it. It's not wrong to want a husband, but she's pushing it into a realm where it's actually, God, this is what you're supposed to do for me. Uh, I want you, but I want you on my terms, God. Could you just do what I want you to do? So it's interesting to get that. Yeah. And what about question four? Can anyone think of what these... Can we see any consequences or... um, Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of her relationship, it's actually quite self-defeating. Um, she's David. That's really important. In her belief system, she's actually convinced that people exist to meet her needs. So there's this very strong sense that Jane is in the centre of Jane's universe and this husband is going to be her almost saviour. She hasn't really thought beyond what married life might look like, but it's just this thing, I will have a husband and I'm not really prepared to contemplate the idea of it not happening. And therefore, God is diminished. So you get to see where these things are becoming huge in her mind. 
and where you see patterns playing out in all of her relationships. People exist to meet my needs. And when they don't, we see that level of despair, frustration, and it all gets reinforced. And I think what's interesting when you think about consequences is that often you see it becoming a cycle, which is why we called it the vicious cycle of folly, that actually your negative responses and where they lead to become your new situation. So in fact, you just spend your time going around the same circle, generating more situations to respond to in the same way that reveal something about your heart that you're not actually addressing and that the gospel isn't really having anything to say about. So... Oh, have we hit the end? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Where's my phone at yours? Well, we need to see the last four, don't we? Well, I don't think we've got time to see <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Which, yeah, so yeah. that might be something you'll have to be able to think about over the break. Oh, that's such a shame. Which, given that we haven't got it worked out, is quite helpful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Sh- shall we finish with a prayer, then? Yeah, we'll It's telling us the same thing. Fair enough. Do, do you want to pray to finish? Um... Yes. I mean, if anyone wants to talk about that a bit more, I mean, I feel like we've left that hanging, really, with yeah. poor old Jane. <laughs> Basically, she's in a mess and she needs Jesus, doesn't she? So, um, <laughs> how that's going... What I'll do is um, I'll give you the Bible passage that I used with Jane that was helpful, because um, I think I chose this passage because, um, as well as walking her through what it looks like to see the Gospel again and know that she needs she needs to be forgiven, she needs to come to Jesus, confess and repent. This is a passage that um, holds all the things that she needs to know day by day, moment by moment in her relationship. So um, the, the, the bit that we've picked out is that the Lord is her portion forever. Until she understands how big God is and how good he is, that doesn't really hold water. But actually to know that the Lord is her portion means that she's less dependent on everybody else. So um, it's a good passage to think through in your own time. Um, sorry, that's Psalm 73. Um, 21. I think it's 21 to 28. I wish I had made it up, but I didn't. Yeah, why don't you pray? Look, I, I, I need to apologise for Sonia because it was because I went on so long that she wasn't able to go on so long. So uh, very briefly, in a nutshell, you are engaged in the activity of turning people from folly to wisdom. How do you do it? Well, with God's help, you deal with the heat he applies in a given situation, you look at somebody's response, an actual situation, not a generality, and that response will tell you volumes about what's going on at the level of the heart. And then, when that is understood by you and the person that you're trying to help, maybe you are the person you're trying to help, you suddenly have um, an understanding of how best to reorientate the relationship with the Lord. Remember, every time something gets big in our heart, other people, ourselves, stuff, God is pushed off his throne. And that first principle of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that gets distorted, that goes wrong. So I'm going to pray for God's help as we go away to do this. And remember, our aspiration is that you come back next time having had some of these conversations and we would love to run a session where we say nothing at all and you help each other work through those conversations around your tables. That would be a wonderful aspiration. Um, God, our Father, we want to thank you very, very much that you are a redeemer, a life changer, a teacher of wisdom and indeed a fulfiller of all wisdom because we don't get there ourselves. Thank you that one day we will see a reality map that is the real reality map. Your view of us, your view of others, your view of the world because we will see you clearly. Between now and then, Heavenly Father, would you please be gracious to make every person in this room a tool for day-to-day, life-level gradual uh, redemption and sanctification in the lives of your people here in Sheffield and beyond. 
Would you do that for us, Lord God, to bring yourself glory. Amen.